0: I will be reading from Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 13. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if you are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, and this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders, the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which he must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Jesus makes all the difference, doesn't he? What a powerful statement by two people who, one of which had denied Jesus, not just kind of an offhanded denial, not just kind of, oops, I denied him, but but denied him directly three specific times, even calling curses down on himself if he was lying. John, we might say, well, John didn't, didn't deny Jesus, but in reality, John was just like all the rest of them who disappeared from Jesus' side and his... Time of need. And if we look back three years in reality, what we know is that if the gospel stories tell us anything, it's that the, dis- the disciples, although they're called and they're following Jesus, they're spending time with Him in a way that is unique and powerful, they still don't get it. When Jesus comes to those critical moments asking those critical questions, their answers seem to be very lost lost largely in their expectations of what the Messiah would be according to their culture and their time and where they lived, not according to what Jesus was projecting the hope of the Messiah to be. Jesus changes everything. Somebody say amen. He makes all the difference. Paul is another one of those people that that things change for because of his experience of Jesus. In Acts chapter six, we're going to read some verses from there, so you may want to go on and turn your your Bibles there at this time. In Acts chapter twenty-six, Paul is giving a speech to the regional uh, Roman governor and also to the, uh, the the local king Herod Herod Agrippa at that time, and the person who had rule kind of more from a civil perspective as opposed from the national uh, Roman perspective. Paul gets to speak to them. And in his speech, he doesn't kind of try to pull any punches. You know exactly who I am. I am the guy who grew up to be the head Pharisee of all head Pharisees. And and that was the group of people who wanted the word of God and wanted to hold on to the the power of what God had said and his revealed word in the Old Testament, they were, many of them, people who had memorized entire huge sections of Scripture. They lived lives that were very actively pursuing the idea of the purity that God called them to. And Paul was chief among them. He was someone who, who made it his goal to do everything that he could, including, and this is really critical, Paul is so zealous for God and for the traditions of his father's, that when people start proclaiming that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and that Jesus was the Messiah, he began to persecute them, to throw them in jail, to question them, to to make life difficult for them. He is said to have been at the, and, and the text says that he was standing there and giving approval. When Stephen was stoned to death because he was speaking blasphemy because he was holding Jesus up. But in the same speech, and it's kind of interesting that, that the book of Acts would tell it this way. Luke tells us in chapter 9 about when Paul, that, at that time Saul, encountered Jesus in a, in a mysterious blinding light on the road to Damascus. Luke writes that story for us in chapter 9. But here in chapter 26, he wants to tell it again. Even though we, the audience who are reading the book, already know that story, he wants to reemphasize it. I was persecuting those who followed Jesus, and then Jesus came to me. And Jesus, Jesus' intersection with my life, made all the difference. And these are some of the words that are part of that that message that Paul delivered to the Roman leader and to the local regional leader, uh, head of, of, of as, as important of people as there were in that time in that part of the world. Let's look at some of those excerpted verses. Paul speaking now of his accusers who are Jewish. The Jewish people all know the way I lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. Again, I was doing it exactly the way people thought I should. And now it is because of my hope. A hope in what God has promised our ancestors In other words, that hope points backwards that I am on trial today. This is the promise, our 12 tribes, again kind of pointing backwards, that our 12 tribes hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of of you consider it incredible? here's a critical mass, that God raises the dead. Keep going and skipping down to verse 22. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus, who is the Roman governor, interrupted Paul's defense and says, You are out of your mind, because he has been raised as a good platonic philosopher. None such thing can happen. It doesn't go on. Your great learning is driving you insane. Paul says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. Paul replied, What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king, that is Herod Agrippa, is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner, not hidden. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be and, and the word here is Christian, but again, the, the idea that, that the original language wants to, that I would be someone who would put my trust in Christ, that I would fo- want to follow in Jesus' footsteps, a Christian. Paul replied, short timer, no, I pray to God that only, not only you, but all who are listening to me today, all who are listening to Paul's word today, may become what I am. That is a follower of Christ, except he doesn't wish on us the chains that he bore. Won't you join me in prayer? Our Father and our God, we thank you for this day and that you've brought us together with this opportunity to celebrate the hope we have in Christ as Peter directed our minds. We thank you for the the promise that the last page is going to be written by you. And that last page, your hope, is that we will be with you all eternity and that we will enjoin in that great banquet that you're preparing that we, we took just a small taste of today. Father, we want to be people who see Jesus as the center of our lives, that sees Jesus as the Lord of our life, that sees Jesus as the absolute foundation, as the song said, of our hope. Father, we proclaim that Jesus makes the difference. We ask your spirit to come. We ask that that spirit would help us to hear what you want to say today. I pray that nothing I do would get in the way of your message to these people. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. And we all say, And now it's because of that hope, that hope that's in Jesus. The idea that Paul wants to say is, I was a different person and now I'm a new person. But that what Jesus brings forward for us is not something new that he generated. And in reality, it's a fulfillment of everything that God has been about since the creation itself. More importantly, since the fall, since the brokenness of sin entered into the world... God has been pointing us forward to that Messiah, that special one, that anointed one who would come and make union with God that would start that process of getting us back to exactly where God wanted us to always be, which is with him, possible. Paul was convinced that the hope that all of the Bible of the Old Testament was pointing to was summed up in Jesus, and he wants everyone... And isn't it kind of audacious to step into the greatest leaders of the lands? These are people who run things. These are people that, almost with a snap of their fingers, there are some exceptions here because Roman law said that Paul could appeal to Caesar. Festus, however, is Caesar's representative. And if Festus wanted to make life difficult for Paul, if Festus wanted to be sure that Paul didn't make it out of Caesarea, Festus could simply snap his fingers and it would be done. Herod, not this Herod, uh, his, a, a cousin of his, was the man who, at a snap of a finger, said, John the Baptist, take his head. And John died. These are those kind of powerful people. They are not used to people telling them that they're wrong, that they've misplaced their ideals, that they, somehow or another, aren't the ultimate answer. They have been. The ultimate answer. And even if they know there's somebody above them. For instance, Herod couldn't have done anything really without Festus's permission. And Festus can't really do anything without um, Caesar's permission ultimately. But they are not used to being questioned. And Paul says, there's something more that you need. I also love the fact that Paul doesn't just say... I only proclaim this to the the opinion leaders, to the people who have power in this world. But Paul says, I will tell this to anybody because it's made that much difference in my life. To great and small, I want them to know the hope of Jesus. Jesus is the center and foundation of our hope. You sang the song, My hope is built... And I love the phrase. We don't talk this way, do we? My hope is built on nothing less. I have a have a friend, uh, and 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 it's and it's common for him to cook wonderful, wonderful Italian uh, suppers, meals for us. He grew up in Italy. He knows how to cook. He's wonderful. And when he comes to your house, he always he, it's not what are you going to cook for me, but it's let me cook for you. And and whenever he's done, it's always this extravagant. It's usually two or three different kinds of pastas. You 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 need to learn very quickly when Bruno's cooking. Do not fill up on the first pasta, because there's more coming. And you th- this, No one is ever treated. We don't we don't we don't go out and do. It's never this good. And his phrase is, "Oh oh, only the minimum for you." you get the picture? This is, this is the least that I want to do for you. The song says, my hope is built on nothing less. That means that my greatest foundation, the most sure hope that I have, is Jesus Christ. Somebody please say amen. It's kind of interesting. Hope is so centered in Jesus that he doesn't even talk about it. Now, I have to carry you a little ways here. If you look in your Gospels and you run, maybe you go to Bible Gateway and you run a concordant search and you put the word hope in and you say the parameters are the Gospels and you run it, you're going to come up with the word hope. Hoping like a verb and then some people will talk about hope quoting the Old Testament about Jesus. But if you look more closely, and by the way, sometimes those searches will come up and when it's Jesus talking, what, what does it look? It looks a little different. It's in red, right? I'm I'm not a big fan of red-letter Bibles. I'm not sure that we always know exactly when Jesus stops talking and starts talking uh, in the text. But when you look at those words in red, Jesus never talks about hope. There's a reason for that. Every hope had been pointing towards God's Messiah coming. Every hope, the hope that every person who decided to put their faith in God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... Joseph, Moses, David, all of the prophets. Everything they were investing in is that God was going to come and make a difference. He was going to change things. He was going to make what was broken by Adam in the garden and every sin since and make it whole. They were looking for a person called the anointed one. Daniel called him the son of man. Isaiah calls him the servant or the suffering servant. But the overarching expectation was for the Messiah to come. And when Messiah came, God was among you. We're going to come to some of those statements in just a minute. I'm going to make a quick survey real fast. But I want you to understand that Jesus doesn't talk about hope because there is no hoping. Hope being about something that's not realized yet. There is no hoping when Jesus is around Jesus comes and the heavens break open and proclaim, here he is now with you. Jesus comes and wherever he is, a little bit of God's kingdom shows up where he goes. Someone who was blind is no longer blind because kingdom has come. He's not hoping to not be blind anymore. He isn't. I love that scene where he feeds the 5,000. They're not hoping to be filled by God God has done it. He is there among them. Jesus doesn't talk about hope because he's the fulfillment of all the hope that there is. Now we step into Acts and the books that follow Jesus' ministry and they're always pointing back to the hope of Christ. The Old Testament is pointing towards to the hope of the Messiah. But Jesus says, and this is his phrase typically, the kingdom is near." Meaning it's here, right here among you. Jesus, that foundation of our hope. The gospel writers will introduce this theme in, a, in several different ways. And I'm just going to pick up a few from each of the gospels. Mark is probably the earliest of the gospels that we look at. And Mark doesn't even tell us about the birth of Jesus. He begins with John the Baptist ministry and then he particularly goes to Jesus' baptism. And at Jesus' baptism, there at the Jordan River, Mark will proclaim to us, this is the one in these words. The heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended in, in the shape of a dove, and the voice spoke. Now, Matthew will have the voice say, this is my son. A proclamation to everyone. Mark tells it this way. He speaks to Jesus. You... You're my son. You're the one. You're the one we've been looking forward to. Everything you do from here on in is going to be about my kingdom breaking into the world. You are my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. Matthew, we turn the page, and whether you want to argue that Matthew is later than Luke, I, I'm not for us to hear to discover, but Matthew tells of his birth story. And Matthew will talk about the birth of Jesus. But mostly what he does, he doesn't necessarily talk about all the details surrounding the birth. What he does is he says, see how Jesus is coming is a fulfillment of prophecy. And so he quotes Isaiah. Who says, and they will call him the one that is to come. Who is Jesus, who is about to be born. Emmanuel. And just to be sure that his audience doesn't miss it at all. He says, Emmanuel means God with us. It's not that we're hoping God will come. It's not that we're trusting that God is going to intervene in the situation. It's that he has in the person of Jesus. Luke wants to tell a few more details about the story. Luke wants to give us some background. So Luke literally goes back and tells us about the when, when John was conceived and when John was born and speaks to Mary. And we, we have this conversation as Mary is is visited by the angel. And this is what the angel says. You'll be with child. You're going to give birth to a son. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. And you will call him God saves. Jesus and Joshua. You will call him by the name God saves, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. This is all language that points towards Messiah. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, so the language points, and now the object, the illustration, giving the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And then this is specifically fulfilling Old Testament words. And his kingdom will never end. I want to be sure you understand that it isn't just about the idea that it's going to go all over the world. It's that it fills up all of time. The kingdom that we'll find in Jesus is a fulfillment of everything we've hoped for. The kingdom that we see that Jesus inaugurated is what we look forward to it being completed. And let me just be real honest. I'm hoping it's completed in my lifetime. I hope I'm alive. When the trumpet sounds and the new inauguration of the kingdom of God, where God is with his people and his people are with him, comes during my lifetime. Luke is pointing towards Jesus as that fulfillment. John will do it without telling the birth story. But in reality, John tells the story from a cosmic perspective. From the very beginning, Jesus was there with God. He helped create the world, and nothing has been made that wasn't made with, with him being part of it. Then he says this The Word became flesh and made his. You might circle that in your text if you find it his dwelling among us. Behold, John the Baptist will say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world two words here that are important. One is that the word became flesh and he dwelt with us. You need to understand that the word that's used there is very specific. It talks about setting up a place where God comes that can move around. In the Old Testament, it was called a tabernacle. Say that word with me, tabernacle. Uh, Donna Marie and Robin in their class with the Third, fourth, fifth graders, uh, every couple of years, will they all make a tabernacle and they bring them out and we see them. And, and, it, and there's all these details about the, what the tabernacle was like. But mostly, what the tabernacle was for, was for there to be a place on earth where man could walk in the front door and God's, in reality, kind of his foot, just the, just the tip of his toe, touched the earth, a place where they came together. John says, the Word became flesh and became the place where God and man meet. And if that's not enough, we turn the page and John the Baptist, it seems almost unsolicited, but if you didn't get it with John's use of the word tabernacle, dwelled with us, John the Baptist says, this is the Lamb of God. This is the sacrifice that makes it possible for us to walk in the front door of the tabernacle. So he is not only the place where God and man meet, but he is the means by which they come together. There is no greater hope than Jesus. So, what can I do? And and by the way, I would guess that most of you ...in this audience are saying, yeah, 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 I Jesus, Jesus, got it, Jesus is the hope. But how do we bring Jesus more and more into the center of the hope of our life? And I just have some quick suggestions, and then I'll get down and get out of the way. First of all, it is my hope that if we're going to be people who are centering our hope on Jesus all our conversations every day need to have a little bit of Jesus language in them. And by the way, I don't mean by that cursing in Jesus' name. You know what I mean? Do I have to say it? Good. Okay. Instead, this is a person that I have a relationship with. And, And as much as I want to talk about well, last week we could talk proudly about the Texans. I'm not sure that that's the case anymore. But, but it, as much as I want to talk about, and, and just a few months ago we could talk proudly about the Astros. And now I, I don't have anything. You talk proudly about where you live. You talk proudly about your family. You talk proudly about your job. You talk, you, you're willing to engage with people in lots of things. But my question is, does your conversation, And and, and by the way, you come on Sunday and say, I talk about Jesus all the time on Sunday. But do we talk about Jesus as if he means something to us, something important to us on a daily basis? And maybe, maybe the way it comes up is that someone uses Jesus as, as kind of a, a slang or a curse word. We say, you know what, that's a friend of mine. I wish you wouldn't use his name that way. That'd be Courageous but it would just put one more way. You might just monitor it to see, do you talk about Jesus? Other than your prayers before meals, other than when you send a text message to a brother or sister in Christ, do you talk about Jesus anywhere other than those isolated places with other Jesus people? And if not... Do we need to center Jesus a little bit more in the middle of our lives and as the foundation of our hope? Centering my hope in Jesus. I want to encourage you. I'm hoping that you're people who read from the Bible daily. I'm hoping that you open it up and, and have some sort of schedule and, and systematic way in which you're reading from the Bible on a daily basis. I think it's very important if we, if we want to be engaged in what God wants us to do for that to be the case. But what I want to encourage you, Is there is a richness in reading from the Gospels? Now, please don't hear me say, does the book of Genesis point forward to Jesus? Does the message from 1st and 2 Samuel about David and the kingdom point forward to Jesus? Does the, the the prophecy of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel point forward to Jesus? The answer is yes. And then and now let's go forward. Does the book of Revelation point to Jesus? Does the book of Acts and the book of Romans point talk about Jesus? Yes, it's all true. But if Jesus is going to be that foundational place, we need to spend a little time in those four wonderful books. Isn't it awesome that God chose to preserve for us four different ways of talking about Jesus and shouldn't? At least, maybe the count should be at least one every four verses that I read ought to, somehow or another, passages that I read ought to go back to the Gospels. There are reading systems that you can pick up on the internet, and if you, if you have a hard time finding one, please send me a text message. I can send you one. It will let you spend time in the Old Testament, in the epistles, the letters that follow the prophets, and in Jesus every single day, in the Gospels every single day. It'll fill you in a way that's quite remarkable. Number three, hasn't it been wonderful to come together and sing these songs in celebration and worship to God today? Amen? Amen. Celebrating my hope in Jesus, though, can't be contained by Sunday mornings, can it? By the way, that doesn't need, mean that you need to walk into Bucky's singing, My hope is built on nothing less. But it might be that you hum a tune. Maybe a tune that you get from KSBJ, maybe from some other song. Maybe it's the sound of words that you read from a gospel. You are my child, and I love you, and you I'm well pleased How does that celebration continue? And how are we to put Jesus in the center of our lives and our hope if the celebration that blesses us so much here on Sunday mornings doesn't go with us wherever we go? Center that hope in Jesus. Again, the invitation is not the idea that that we want you to come and get some some brokenness in your life straightened out because we all have brokenness. It's not that you need something more, so come join our little social club. The invitation, for me, every moment of every day, God calls to me and I hope I respond. The invitation is Christ. And how can he change your life? So, last week I talked about the fact that our hope is not a what, it's a who, right? And it's Jesus. But I also want to say that Jesus gives a great what am I hoping for in who he is. I am hoping for kingdom to come. And Jesus said it this way when he taught us to pray. I'm wanting kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven.